0: Coming up, Cybercast Oregon, a podcast about the ins and outs of technology security, explored through personal stories, how-to guides, and expert advice. Today's show is all about the scams, cons, and hacks that slide through our online defenses. With every tech evolution and security update, hackers develop smarter tools and find more backdoors. It's a frantic back and forth of upgrades and outsmarting, with armies of tech experts and hackers involved. But at the forefront of the cybersecurity war are everyday people, business owners, parents, and even high school kids. So how can all of us, tech savvy or not, stay alert and ahead of the latest attempts on our cybersecurity? Great questions, and we have answers. This is Cybercast Oregon on Portland Radio Project.
1: This is Cybercast Oregon, and I am your host, Kedma O, oh, with the SBDC at Mount Hood Community College. 2018 is here, and with it a whole host of industry predictions of what will dictate this year's cybersecurity experience. Experts are forecasting an evolution in the sophistication of cyber attacks, but we're also seeing old tricks and scams recycled. On today's episode, we're going to sift through trends and threats and try to puzzle out how to stay one step ahead of cybercriminals when it comes to scams, cons, and common fraud schemes. So let me welcome to the show our guest experts, Tobin Shield, lead instructor at the Center for Advanced Learning, as well as a part-time teacher from Mount Hood Community College's cybersecurity department. Wow. Yeah. Well, <laughs> welcome. <laughs>
2: Thank you. I appreciate it.
1: Um, Greg Moore, with uh, VP of Technical Systems at Regional Multiple Listing Service (RMLS). RMLS. Yes, welcome. And Travis Smith, Principal Security Researcher at Tripwire. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm going to start with Topin. If you can just share a little bit about your background, and I'm always so curious on how someone has gotten into
2: this field. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's funny. So I actually started my career as wanting to be an English teacher. And, uh, you know, as it turns out, there are a lot of English teacher people who want to become an English teacher, but not a lot of positions that are open. And so I had a background in web development. It was just kind of a hobby that I had. And the school that I was applying for said, look, we don't have any English teacher positions open, but we have a ton of tech positions that we need. So I fell into this computer science teacher position when I was told, hey, you're going to be teaching cybersecurity. And I literally had no idea what that term meant. But after a year of really really diving into this, having tons and tons of experts coming to my classroom, getting mentored by some amazing other instructors, I actually ended up pursuing a master's in that subject. And so while I was still going to school, I ended up getting a master's in cybersecurity. And I just kept hearing over and over and over again that this need was so high and that they just need as many qualified experts as possible. So as a teacher, I wanted to try and make sure I was supporting my students going into a career field that was obviously high need, high wage, but also could have a really positive impact in
0: our community.
1: Wow. Phenomenal. Thank you. What about you, Greg? How'd you get into it?
0: Well, I've worked in real estate IT for 31 years, so it's been a long time, but Way back in the olden days, I actually learned to code in COBOL. So I went to tech school, and you know, it's funny. I found technology actually being a teller in the olden days. So I worked at a bank, and the cool guys were the guys that came and fixed stuff. They drove nice cars, they had nice clothes, you know. And I thought, gosh, that's that's like a cool career. So. About 35 years ago, I started learning to program, and it's just technology. It's just something I love, and it, it's exciting and fun, and real estate's really an interesting place. It's The evolution has just been amazing in all these years, from printing books to you know online and pictures and all the cool things we're doing now.
1: So be- I have to ask, uh, because you started 31 years ago, did you program on really large computers that are like the size of a building or...
0: Well, they were like refrigerator sized machines. And the fun thing is when we were in class, you know, if somebody did something stupid, they had to restart the machine while you're coding. So, you know, we learned a lot of lessons about technology, like save every 30 seconds and those kinds of things. But yeah, you know, yeah, it's just cool. When When I actually took my first real job in IT, they were carrying the card punch reader down. So you get some real concept of my age at that point. Yes. Love it.
1: Thank you. Well, Travis, tell us a little bit about how you got involved.
3: Yeah, I had a background of computer science when I went to college. And when I graduated, my roommate was working for a security startup company down in the Bay Area at the time. So he just told me, hey, come uh, come work here. It's a really fun company. It's only a handful of people. And I kind of fell in love with, with cybersecurity at that point. You know, Going through college, I didn't really take any security classes or know what security was really all about. So Kind of getting my feet wet, jumping in basically head first into the security world was really immersive for me, and it's been a lot of fun. You know, yeah. There's so many different segments of cybersecurity that going into it with a fresh mind and not, you know, having a mindset of this is what I want to do really allowed me to pursue my passions and be successful at what I'm doing.
1: Well, thank you. And the reason I bring it up and why I'm so excited is, as many of us know cybersecurity jobs are, there's just not enough of us to fill them. And so we may have people listening to this saying, wow, I I would love that opportunity. So it's so important to share where we've come from. Well, I want to lead the first question to really talk about what you think are the top threats that individuals and small businesses may be facing today Especially in light of what we're seeing as some, some of that 2018 forecast. So, if I look at some of the threats, there's everything from whether companies can meet their cybersecurity compliance regulations, there is state threats where more states are being attacked, there is certainly scams, everything from Medicare to just tax scams. So, you know, if you're thinking about the forecast, I'd be curious to hear from each of you what you believe are the major threats happening to individuals today and small businesses?
0: Well, um, personally, it's it's phishing and fraud. I mean, it's become a billion-dollar business. So, I mean, there, there are call centers now out there that, that'll take your calls, and, and they look so legitimate. It, it's frightening. You get emails that that aren't misspelled. They don't have bad grammar anymore. All those, those things. And as people get busy and Email and those things are just part of regular life. It's so easy to click on something and just unsuspectingly get an infection that just begins kind of grief in your life.
1: You know, and to your point, Greg, I think as I hear you say, you know, they have bad spelling. I merely think, well, they need Tobin the English teacher, <laughs> right, <that's true. laughs> to make sure they get that right. But Topin, what are your thoughts on it?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Well, so, you know, I think it's, it's always interesting because, you know, cybersecurity, we get stuck in this mindset that it's always about protecting threats that have already happened, right? You know, how can we go back and patch the event, like the big WannaCry ransomware attack, you know, so IT, you know, people are trying to scramble to figure that out. And so it is really, really good to look back on, like, the year, like, 2017 to see, well, what were the popular malware threats, what were we targeting? And right now, and I'm sure, we you know, you've heard this multiple times, I mean, ransomware is just incredibly on the rise right now, which, you know, for those of you who don't know, ransomware is where, you know, your really critical data is all locked up, and then you have to pay a ransom to unlock it. And I think that really shows a shift now in what hackers find valuable because for a long time, you know, it was always just we're always worried about our banking information, like my credit card number or my debit card number. But it's so easy for us now to just deactivate our cards, right? Like on my Bank of America app, I can deactivate my card with, with a swipe. And so just because you have my banking information doesn't mean it's really valuable anymore. But your data is super valuable. Your family photos are incredibly valuable. And those have a really high dollar value to us. So instead of trying to steal that data now, you're seeing these adversaries shifting to both large organizations, right? You know, giant, huge hospitals, but also human people, right? Targeting and locking up that data because our data is incredibly valuable. In 2017, ransomware went up 167 percent from from previous years, and that's a, a track record from all the way back from 2014, where we had 3.8 million cases in 2015 to 638 million cases of ransomware the following years. So I think that's the real shift. It's not even so much that, you know, definitely fraud is a huge part of it because there's a lot of money to be had in, in financial fraud, but we also see this idea of, of data being very, very valuable in both personal and private organizations.
1: Excellent, excellent. Travis, any thoughts?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think, I think both of you guys brought up a couple of really interesting points that I want to elaborate on a little bit. And one is really the value, how we value our data and why ransomware has become so successful over the past few years. As individuals, we have an emotional connection to our data, our family photos, our documents, things that historically it's what you would grab when you're you know, running out of the house and your house is on fire. right? So it's things that we do not want to lose. And with the click of a button, opening an email, going to the wrong web page, you could lose all that in an instant, You know, at least without having to pay hundreds of dollars in ransomware. Uh, which is why it's been so success- successful is that attackers are preying on that emotional connection that we have and trying to get that emotional rise to make you worry enough that you don't know how you're going to get that data back. And they have that countdown on there, you know, counting down from you know 36 hours or 24 hours, whatever the hour is, that that increases the urgency for people that they need to they can't figure out if they have backups or if they have this stored somewhere else. And they just say, OK, I'll just pay $300 and I'll be done with it. And it's the same for businesses. You know, it's less of an emotional connection. It's more of a financial connection of, you know, a hospital can't lose patient records. They can't be down because they need to save lives, and a business is there to make money. And, you know, even though a business could have backups, you know, either large or small, what is it cheaper to do? Is it cheaper to pay the ransom, or is it cheaper to try to go through your process to to restore from backups? And a lot of times it could be just cheaper to pay, pay the ransom. And while it sucks to say, well, you know, you shouldn't pay the ransom because you're just funding cyber criminals, at the end of the day, a business is a business and it's there to make money. Uh, So it's, you know, just why ransomware has been so, you know, so, so successful.
1: You know, and as I'm listening to this, because all of you are bringing excellent points, I'm thinking about what are the the weak areas that ha- hackers are most commonly exploiting? So we've talked about personally, you know, those photos, something with an emotional connection. Then we went all the way to possibly hospitals. I also am curious about that influence in that weakness. So, I mean, obviously a hospital with sensitive data would, for my mind, appear to be more vulnerable, but perhaps not. Maybe it's that individual mom who has her seven kids and has been keeping these photos from, since they were babies. Maybe that individual is more vulnerable. Can you speak to that and some of the weaknesses that, that may be commonly exploiting?
0: Oh, I mean, he made a great point. I mean, you know, for two or three hundred bucks to, to get your family pictures back or or to lose all that great history, it, it's just too easy to to pay it because like you say, the loss is, is great. And I think I mean the price point I think is even something that's engineered because it's not the tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands that, you know, a hospital's willing to pay, but most mom and dads will easily buck out, you know, a couple of hundred bucks to get that stuff back. And the weird thing with ransomware is, I mean, unfortunately, we got to see this in in real life once is it'll even lock your Dropbox if it's open. I mean, and I was shocked that, you know, that the machine that, you know, or the network that got hacked, you know, the person who clicked on the bad email actually was in Dropbox. And I mean, all the way down there. So, you know, unless you're disconnected, it's gone and Mm -hmm. you're normally you'll pay the box.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a, that's a really important question. You know, on one of your previous shows, you ended up asking, well, what does that stereotypical hacker look like? And, you know, the person you had on the show said, well, there is no stereotypical hacker. It's everything from organized crime to nation states to, yes, that geeky guy in the bedroom with the hoodie <laughs> on, right? I mean, it's everyone. And so I think, you know, to answer that question, who's vulnerable, unfortunately, is just as a complex answer. Because the idea is, like, if you're using the same passwords over and over again, you haven't updated your systems, like, your your likelihood of getting hit by one of those wide blanket schemes goes way, way up, right? But you know, on the flip side of that, let's say that you're a hospital, you're OHSU, and you have the you know the greatest security team on the planet. If you're not constantly vigilant, you will get taken down by a nation state actor eventually, right? So while yes, OHSU is never going to fall for the Nigerian phishing scam, right? The, the prince of moving gold from one country to the other they still have to be very vigilant and they still have to have constant people working with their systems. So it really depends on what kind of data you have, the kinds of systems that you're protecting, and the kind of, I guess, threat that you're trying to prepare against.
1: Excellent. Uh, Travis, any thoughts?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think the common theme there is it's the
3: people that are the weakest link. From a technology standpoint, the technology that individuals were using at home is the same, very similar to the technology that small businesses and enterprises are using every day. It's the person that's gonna click on the, the link. It's you know, whether that is a you know tax scam from a your what you think is your accountant saying here's your, your tax forms for twenty eighteen, uh to a you know chief financial officer getting an email from the CEO saying we need to, to transfer, you know, the W two forms and then sending out data that way. It's really exploiting the human and that's exactly what's gonna happen, whether you're small or big. But one of the, the points you're bringing up about, about Bitcoin is that it's so easy to pay that $300. Or sorry, for ransomware is you know $300 in Bitcoin. We've actually been seeing I don't know the right word here, but criminals are like more timid to release new versions of ransomware with hard-coding the value simply because of the volatility of the Bitcoin market over the last six months. You know, previously they'd be able to use the same piece of malware and say, "Give me you know half a Bitcoin," and then they'd be good to go. But now, half a Bitcoin could be Ten thousand dollars today it could be twenty thousand dollars tomorrow, and the day after that it could be three hundred dollars. So, the way criminals are going to be monetizing their schemes is probably going to change in the coming year if the the cryptocurrency markets are as volatile as it have been.
1: Well, I'm trying not to be scared. Because we're here to promote and support and help resources. But as I'm listening, I'm wondering how sophisticated and targeted they are when we think about companies. So is it more of a broad cyber attack or is it pretty specific where maybe they're aware they're going after construction industry? They're going after the agriculture industry. I'm curious to know, are you seeing trends that actually will target certain industries aside from the financial, which is pretty much the given in healthcare, but are, do you see subset industries that could be more vulnerable or is it cross the map and, and again, sort of more broad
2: in nature? You know, I can definitely speak to this idea. Like I said, you know, we, hackers are now shifting away from, you know, what do we find, what do hackers find valuable? And so, they're, what they're really doing is they're targeting organizations where data is is either one of two things: it's either worth a lot to the company, or it's information that we can't shake off. Like, and you know, with healthcare, such a good example is you can't shake off your healthcare history, right? You can't shake off your social security number. And so, for that reason, the education sector has actually been targeted pretty substantially because what they're doing is they're now stealing, you know, sixth and seventh graders' social security numbers and their their personal information, because they go open up bank account informations in a seventh grader, they're not going to know about their credit you know their credit score tanking until they go to take out you know their first loan for buying their first car in their eighteen nineteen. And so they get away with a lot of this fraud for a lot longer. So from a school perspective, you know, we've had to lock down incredibly both at the college and at the high school levels in protecting our student data because schools are getting hit with ransomware. They're getting hit with these schemes. And so IT departments within school systems are looking a lot more like the IT departments and security departments like a big corporation now, unfortunately, because we have laws, FERPA, laws that, like you said, regulations that schools have to comply with and Unfortunately, teachers, the whole school staff, even the lunch ladies, right, they have to keep in mind the student information uh, in order to keep them safe. So there are organizations like education, like uh, manufacturing, like construction that have a lot of that information and really critical information. Yeah.
0: Wow. Well, obviously, real estate's a big target. You know, and what they're after there is usually they're looking for those funds transfers so, I mean, you know, we're telling people even be careful what you're putting out on social media because that's, you know, once you identify yourself in, into an industry, whatever it is, you know, that that target gets more refined and those emails get better and better. And, and I was saying this morning, you know, I, I got a real fun email that said something about, you know, look at page nine of the contract. Well, I'm in real estate IT, so I knew that that was a great phishing you know, email. But if you think I'm a busy realtor, you know, it's really hard to think, well, gosh, I'm in the middle of a transaction. You know, I need to get this thing done. So wow. it's it's really, I think they're doing a great job now. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Travis, any thoughts?
3: Yeah. One of the, the major markets that we've been seeing getting attacked lately has been industrial and critical assets. So, you know, power supplies, and dams, nuclear plants, you look at overseas a lot of attacks happen there and then they start migrating into you know the americas and one prime example is ukraine when they got their their power grid taken offline and that's actually a really uh, brilliant way that they went about their attack um in which they you know they fished the engineers that were looking at the the you know the screens of showing the power supplies of everything and essentially gave them a piece of malware and to spoof their screen and said everything is looking normal, while you know underneath the hood, they're you know, kicking over power uh, conductors and turning off the power for 207,000 citizens. But what was really brilliant at the same time is they did a denial of service against their call center, So the actual customers, the people at home, had no way to actually call in and tell the engineers that the power was out. So the power went out for a huge uh, amount of time. And if you look at the, the systems that Industrial is running, a lot of these are running on outdated hardware. It's not uncommon to see Windows XP still running on these systems that are you know, basically turning the lights on for millions of people. And if you have a, a machine that's running outdated, unsupported hardware that's not getting security updates from its vendor, that's just in, introducing a ton of risk, but it's risk that is necessary to keep the world running.
1: You know, as I listen, it's so shocking because it's it's it the truth is is these are really sophisticated companies. And if I think about it, I'm wondering how profitable they are. So I'm just gonna lay it like I always do. If I was unemployed and I decided that I wanted to get a job as a hacker, is this like a fifty thousand dollar job a year, a hundred thousand? Are we in the millions? I mean, how profitable is this? from an individual who decides to do it, or a, a company who's taking on this as a serious business?
0: It's a billion-dollar industry, so I'm sure if you're very successful at <laughs> there's hundreds of thousands of dollars coming your way. And I mean, the scary thing is, you know, it's almost like shareware software. I mean, you know, ransomware is, is out there where, as you say, if you're an unemployed tech, you can just get out and pick up, you know, some software and... Cook it a little bit and, you know, set your price and tell it where to send the money.
2: Wow. Well, you know, I can tell you. I'm all into cybersecurity and and computer science. And so, of course, I asked my wife for Christmas for some hacking tools, right? (laughs) And it was just so scary because, you know, it it came to me. I got two really scary tools that the website had beautiful logos on it, had a customer service support number. It came to me in this gorgeous box. It has funny (gasps) names like the Bash Bunny and the Wi-Fi Pineapple, right? (laughs) And the the interfaces are are pretty. They're refined. A designer helped make these. And so to answer your question, I mean, yeah, it takes a little expertise, but I think the – the skill level and that that uh, the learning curve for a lot of this technology is substantially reduced, right? And, and not only are they spoofing call centers, but the reality is if I buy this malware kit, I actually have a call center I can ask to help me go through the malware and say, hey, my malware's not working. Help me out, right? And so I think to answer, you know, as far as the dollar amount. It just depends on how much you're willing to invest in it, if you're going to join an organized organization. But from an individual person, just the cost to entry is much, much lower than it used to be. And it's kind of fun and their tools are cool. So, you know what I mean? Like, I don't know, like, it's awful. We are not
1: promoting. That's true. But no, but, but the thing is, though, is, is it,
2: it, it's a bummer because, you know, we're trying to ask ourselves, like, how do we stop people from getting into that market, right? Yeah. So it's definitely scary to see that trend moving forward. Absolutely. No, and
1: it's and it's true. And, and actually, you know, in all, uh, you know, all humor aside, I love the fact that you are an educator and you are looking at these hack tools because that's how we become smarter is to understand what the criminals are doing. So kudos to you. Just don't hack me.
2: No, I Uh, I won't.
1: (laughs) Travis, one one last thought. Yeah. So
2: I
3: mean, I think you said know yeah, there's it's really low cost entry. Still waiting on the 2017 numbers, but in 2016, the return on investment for ransomware for the attackers was 1,300 percent, and that's not wow. not wrong. It's 1,300 percent. So you put in, you know, five ten thousand dollars, you're gonna you're gonna make quite a bit of money on a ransomware campaign, and it's simply because that there's Exactly as it was said before, there's just these kits that you can go and you can you can pick and choose what components you want. You'd say, I want ransomware, I want a keylogger, I want command and control and it gets bundled all together just like you're sitting at Subway picking out a sandwich. Then you just click a button and it goes and the, the learning curve is so incredibly small that I mean, almost anybody could become a hacker if they if they really wanted to put the time into it. And it's that's what makes you know, the the world a scary place, but the, you know, It's the the world we live in, and that's why we have defenders that are defending, you know, all these networks, and and they're actually doing a really good job. And it's people like, you know, the educators, you know, like the the gentleman on the phone. And Mm -hmm. being able to, you know, know how to attack is, is critical for defenders, right? If you want to know how to defend, you need to know how, you know, attackers, what their mindset is, how they're going to get in, how they're going to pivot across the environment. If you don't know any of that, you're not going to be as successful as a defender. As the people that do know how to how to attack and are familiar with the attacking tools.
1: Absolutely. I call it the cyber superheroes. So with these predictions and trends in mind, let's talk next about what these scams, both the new and old, look like in action. We'll hear stories from the cybersecurity front after the break. <laughs>
3: Support for CyberCast Oregon comes from Mount Hood Community College Small Business
1: Development Center, working with entrepreneurs to create, grow, and protect successful businesses. Learn more at mhcc.edu sbdc. What's a common way to be fooled by cyber criminals, assuming you're not a target? I'm Ketma Oh, your host on CyberCast Oregon, and I lead the Cybersecurity Initiative for Malhut Community College and the Small Business Development Centers. And today we're walking through the sometimes mind-bending world of cyber fraud and understand what it looks like when it happens to people like you. Rejoining us now with cautionary tales and examples and no names is Towen Shields from the Center of Advanced Learning. And Mount Hood Community College's Cybersecurity Department, welcome. Hi. And Greg Moore from Regional MLS Technical Hi. Service Department, welcome. And Travis Smith from Tripwire's Security Team, welcome. So I am so excited because we had such a great first segment. I want to continue and really get into some great stories. So when we tend to think of cyber crime as hackers getting access to data by tricking technology systems, but how often do people unwittingly, excuse me—participate in being hacked?
0: It's so easy. I mean, plugging your phone into a place that'll give you a free charge—you know—the data can can fly right back out. So, uh, you know, what you think is very innocent really can begin to to get you in trouble. They can plant stuff on the phone and they certainly can take all your contacts and all kinds of information off of it all the way down to your email so then they can again start working through that and, and seeing where those targets might happen to be.
2: Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think it's really important, you know, whenever we see hacking portrayed in movies, it's this really intense, brutal process with <laughs> screens all over the place, right? But the reality is that, you know, it takes a long, a lot of time, effort, and energy to go through a lot of these intense technical exploits, but it only takes a few minutes to send an email, right, that might lure a person into a... Into, uh, you know, giving credentials. And so even the most advanced, sophisticated hackers start with that email because it's easy, cheap, and it works. Verizon did a study of 40,000 security incidences of over almost 2,000 breaches and found that 43% started with social engineering. It started with and was successful as a result of an email campaign or clicking on a fishy link. And so because the success rate is so high, the human element is targeted just like viciously by these by these adversaries.
1: Excellent, Travis.
2: Yeah, so there's
3: a good point there that the hackers start with with email or social engineering uh, as starting point. They absolutely do, but there's you know also a ton of work that goes in behind it. Whether that's researching the person that they're going to try to attack or the company they're trying to attack to to know what the the lingo is for the company but also you know what the exploit is going to be behind it there's a lot of r&d that's going to be done by the attackers and one of the prime examples that you know we don't really know if it was supposed to happen this way was the gmail phishing campaign of last year that happened in may where the phishing email was gone out and it was clicked and it was you know shared across contacts and it spread to millions of gmail users but there was nothing malicious behind it besides the fact that it was really spreading so, you know, was that just a a research topic that would happen from a, you know, that somebody was seeing, is this possible? Or was it an actual, you know, malicious campaign that they were just testing to see is this going to happen and it just spread way beyond their control? So it's, it's tough to tell. But yeah, I mean, email is definitely something that's going to be a prime tool, in a, an attacker's cool, toolkit.
1: Yeah, and as I'm listening, I know that phishing is very popular. Social engineering is very popular. I'm curious to know if, Any of you have seen common scams. So I'll give you an example. I'm very aware of phishing, of course, because of the work I do. Having said that, I happen to be in the state of Oregon. I'm certified as a woman-owned business. It's a state certification. You have to go through requirements to meet the compliance. And last year, I get, guess what, phishing email from the state about my certification. Let me tell you, that was real for me because it was very specific. Not many people have certification who have gone through that. And I, I did not click on the link, but I do remember calling them to say, I want to make sure that this is accurate. And it was, it was actually a phishing campaign. So in that example, have you noticed, especially to the real estate have you noticed actual targeted language that would fool someone in the way that I almost really got fooled?
0: Oh, absolutely. And I say, you know, it's really interesting to watch because I've received some and I think it's from my social media postings. It just says I'm involved in real estate. But, you know, the one thing I think we always tell our customers is obviously they're very busy and they're, they're normally on the run and with their phones. And, and it's so easy to click like an email I received. It says, you know, let's review the contract. There was a simple change. The other place in real estate they're really going after is funds transfers. So they really are targeting, you know, once they get to your email, they're watching those conversations. And right at the right place, you know, they'll, they'll want to change a transfer order. You know, oh, don't send it to this account. Gosh, you know, I, I need you to send it to, to another account. So you know, we're we're really talking in our industry that many things you know, encrypted email is just going to become a norm. VPNs should become a norm for you, especially when you're out on the run. You know, you stop by Starbucks, you pick up your email. Well, you're on a public Wi-Fi network that, as we know, is really easy to 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 watch what's what's flying around.
1: And, and for people who are just joining us because you used a term, VPN.
0: Oh, sorry. Thank it's you. It's
1: okay. Can you please elaborate a little bit?
0: It's, it's a virtual private network. So really it's a, it's a tunnel between, you know, the machine that you're using, your, your phone or whatever, and, and say the email server that you're pulling email from. So you have truly encrypted traffic from end to end at many times. And most companies now have them for you if you're working from home, doing those kinds of things to really protect that traffic that that's moving along.
2: Absolutely. No, I think that that's, uh, again, we've kind of said that, you know, phishing scams, the, definitely the, the moving gold into Africa scam exists still, but, <laughs> but no, those, those targeted phishing scams are so important at an organization I worked at previously. I got permission from my employer to actually fish my staff and so what I ended up doing was I took on some of the, the mannerisms of my supervisor, but I also did a bunch of textbook, <laughs> like, phishing scam stuff. Like, it came from a Gmail, right? It was their name at Gmail. I misspelled some words. I was like, urgent, must change password now. Please do now, right? I just all of it. And you know we had about twenty people in our organization, and thirteen people went through the process. You know, and it's because I used the name, I name dropped the the IT person, but I made sure what I did is that all the information I included in email I could have found from Google searches, right? I was able to find the name of the IT person. I was able to find the name of my supervisor because they're plainly on the directory. I was able to find the, all the names of my staff members because their directory was posted online, right? So you know, a lot of my I got actually a lot of my my coworkers were mad at me because I revealed that after the fact they're like this was so specific no one would ever know their mannerisms it's like you just email my boss for two seconds and you get their mannerisms right you get their signature you get the their profile picture and it was so scary effective because it was so highly targeted and so i think that's where we need to be careful that you need to understand that textbook list of things of a phishing email has targeted or not that way you can protect yourself
1: you know and before i get travis comment on this back to your response What's to say the cyber criminal is not in your organization?
2: Yeah, unfo- I mean, yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, insider threats are, are are massive, right? Whether the insider themselves are the hacker, or the insider, you know, is a disgruntled employee who wants to make some extra money and partners with that hacker. And unfortunately, you know, when you as as an employer are hiring someone, there's implicit trust that you know you elevate that person up into a, a privileged position that they're not going to you know exploit that permission. And while of course as an organization you need to safeguard yourself or insider threats, there's a certain point where you just have to trust someone. And so that's why they they are and can be and are so dangerous to your organization when it happens.
1: Yeah. Travis?
3: Yeah. So I want to kind of get back to the the targeted language and the the types of campaigns that we see. Usually every year between, you know, right about now until April are the the tax time frauds, right, for individuals. It's like, okay, here's something from your accountant or here's your W-2 forms. But, you know, for businesses, it's quite common to see fish uh, communications between, like, the CFO and the CEO, where they want to share WTUs of the employees, and one one of them is requesting it from the other. Or the, the CEO sends a phishing email to the CFO saying, we need to bank wire a million dollars to this company to complete a deal, right? And if that's not outside the norm... That's going to happen, and it does happen all the time, right? And W-2-type attacks happen in during tax time because that's when it's expected. But there's also phishing campaigns that attackers always do consistently around major notable events, and one that you know everybody, both individuals and businesses, need to look out for in the coming months is going to be around the Olympics, right? There's going to be emails saying, you know, click here to watch the Olympics or, you know, you know, click here to see this video. OMG, it's it's amazing, right? You click on it and it's malware, and that's going to be happening. And it's important to to know that, um, and that's why training a human is so so critical, right? And that's exactly what we were talking about a minute ago: is this is your own employees, and it's something that's really important. And if you have never done it before, it's really easy. Just start simple um, to do the basics, which everybody should know. Uh, Send an email saying, I'm a Nigerian prince, and click here to, mm-hmm. to get money. And that hopefully you have a near 100% click rate of people saying that this is phishing. Right. Um, you know, getting more advanced and more targeted, and then eventually you can start doing the advanced phishing against your executive team to to train them against the W-2 type scams to make sure that they're at least aware that that has happened.
1: Excellent. You know, and as I'm listening to this, and especially also with the first segment, I'm curious to know... What are some of the common reasons for not maybe catching these cyber criminals, if it's trust or if it's lack of training or cybersecurity? So let me give you a situation. In our first segment, we talked about that mom where she'd be happy to pay $300. So she gets hacked. Does she call 911 and say, "I have an emergency." "What's your emergency?" "I've just been hacked." <laughs> and who is it? "I don't know, but I need you to take care of it." So, where does that go? You know, what do you know what the FBI is doing? And really, is it is anybody going to go after these companies for $300? What happens to that individual?
0: Well, I say I went to a seminar where the FBI and the NSA are interested in. So they want to hear from you. They're not going to get your pictures back without you paying the 300 bucks. But, you know, they can kind of do some forensics to see where this stuff is coming from. And I mean, at least it gives them another footprint so they can begin to to follow that. So, I mean, it, it, I thought it was kind of interesting, but, you know, the FBI does at least encourage you to send them some information when, when these events happen. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. I think, you know, if we were to think about it in kind of maybe a, another real world example, you know, if you get your, you know, your debit card information stolen, right. You just think it was bad luck. Right. But it's still important to report that to, to the police. Cause even if they can't help you, you know, you might be the, the fourth person in the local area to have that reported. So then the, the detective is going to be like, OK, I actually do need to start investigating. And they find it's a certain convenience store or something like that. Right. And so I think it is really important that you do report it, even if it's f- so frustrating when they say we can't help you. Someone is recording that. They are saying, oh, it came from Oregon or it came from Washington, and, oh, it looks like it was this kind of ransomware or this malware. And so then the FBI can say, okay, this is an issue, and then we'll actually start uh, hopefully trying to address it. So again, it's it's frustrating as an end user because nothing, a lot doesn't happen from it, but it does aid in the greater conversation and the greater effort to try and uh, disrupt that malware. Excellent.
1: Travis?
3: Yeah, and if you get infected with malware or ransomware or any of these things, it's not critical, but it's absolutely important that you you know contact the authorities, whether that's the you know your local police or the you know the state FBI office, you know, because they're not going to monitor individual cases like was said. They're not going to care that you know you got you lost three hundred dollars to the speech and malware. But you know, if it becomes a trend in the area, is it a campaign that is targeting people that living in Portland or in Oregon in general? It becomes a bigger issue for them. And being able to share uh, any data you have about the attack, especially for businesses is gonna be great for you know sending the malware to the you know the FBI or the, the secret service or whoever is analyzing it because then they can take that and then they can analyze it and they can share it with other people in the industry. So if you are a you know a retailer and your competitor has been you know had a massive data breach and has been compromised, if you're in that same market then you're either a probably next on the attacker's list or even worse, you already were on the list, you just don't know you've been breached.
1: Right. And, you know, if we're trying to prevent that, when we think about, you know, trust or lack of training, how critical is it for employees to get training? I know with small businesses, it's like the CEO gets training, but everyone else who interacts with customers gets no training. So, you know, is is there a correlation between more training and less attacks or is it really more on hardware just get the right hardware make sure your systems are in play and you'll be 99 percent secure
0: i think it's both um you know we really do try to tell employees if you're not expecting that email please don't click on it you know the other idea is just type the url in you know you don't need to use the convenient click always so it, it, there is some training and obviously, you know, making sure as we're saying, you know, your, your gear is patched and I know it's a, it's a pain, you know, your, your downtime and those kinds of things, but that's why those patches are out there. It's not, they're trying to give you the latest, greatest, cool thing. Cause that may slide in too, but most of the patches are all about security, be it office or, or OS, whatever it have to be the, you know, your windows operating system.
1: Excellent.
2: Yeah. And, you know, I, I think to kind of answer that question, it's, of course, it's the complex answer. It's both, right? You know, it is the combination of human and, and technology. And I think the right way to kind of approach that is to really bake security and, and not just cybersecurity, but this idea of, like, organizational security, um, organizational, like, do you want to keep the organization alive and safe, And so that's true of whether or not it's cybersecurity, whether that's true of, hey, don't let suspicious people in. If you see something, say something like that should be lumped into the greater conversation of how can we ensure that our organization is safe? It's going to maintain a healthy, long life. Right. And that that means that the IT department is doing their job to maintain their infrastructure, but that the employees also feel like that, you know, they're not just trying to catch a phishing email as they are. They're trying to maintain a healthy Safe organization, whether from if from fishing to physical safety as well. So that, I think that should be baked into a, a bigger conversation within an organization. Excellent,
3: Travis. Yeah. So I definitely think that training our users is going to have a correlation with having less tax and there's actually certain compliance frameworks that making that make sure you are training your employees on security you know best practices you know making sure that they're changing their emails or, or sorry changing their passwords for their email or they uh, you're training them on the proper techniques of at least not maybe just phishing them but what is phishing and what are attacks that are happening and you know sans.org has a great program called training the human which is just a very simple set of videos that you can have all of your employees watch and view and you can make it a quarterly or yearly thing that just just brushes over the basics right your typical employee or your typical you know even your typical individual doesn't really care about security they don't need to know the the details of how an exploit or a malware family works but if they're at least aware and they have that consciousness about them that the you know their computer and the internet is a, a dangerous place and people are out there to get them It'll at least have them hopefully in the back of their mind have their guards up when they see something that doesn't look right. Then they can, you know, do the proper thing like you know, call somebody and, and report something that is not right.
1: Fantastic. Well, I'll tell you those examples are enough to make even the most casual technology user a little bit paranoid. So next we're gonna cover how to take a proactive stance against sneaky cyber scammers and how that paranoia might actually come in handy after the break. (music) ¶¶
3: Support for Cybercast Oregon comes from Mount Hood Community College Small Business Development
1: Center, working with entrepreneurs to create, grow, and protect successful businesses. Learn more at mhcc.edu/sbdc. I'm Kedma O, oh, your host on Cybercast Oregon, and with the SBDC today, we're looking to the future and weighing how cyber scams are a threat to businesses, big and small. We're closing out this episode with practical advice for those wanting to arm themselves and their teams against costly cons and reputation-damaging security breaches. With us now to talk smart strategies, Tobin Shields from the Center for Advanced Learning at Mount Hood Community College Cybersecurity Department. Hi. Greg Moore from Regional RMLS Technical Service Department. Hi. And Travis Smith from Tripwire's security team. Welcome back, everyone. So in review of segment two, I want to continue this conversation around education because technology is everywhere. But the discussion of cybersecurity is still new for many, many companies. How would education and awareness sort of play out with cybersecurity when you're working within an organization? And can you give an example of perhaps a situation that it did come into play and, you know, what was the results?
2: well i can tell you you know one of the things and this is kind of a recurring thing is is you have to you have to not only you know give the sort of lecture here's what a phishing scam looks like here's what an email looks like but then you kind of have to follow it up with and by the way we're going to trick you we're going to actually actively test you on this And, you know, it shouldn't be seen as punitive. I think that's really, really important. It should not be as like an I gotcha moment. And so I think, you know, some really positive things that have occurred is when you, you know, you're praising your employees, like, look, you are actively, you know, you've learned what we've done and you are keeping our our organization safe. You know, you are maintaining an adversarial mindset to be able to, you know, ensure the security of an organization. And so there's some really great organizations like FishMe.com is a full solution where you can like pay an X amount of dollars as as a, you know, as an executive, and they will completely manage this sort of phishing campaign with your organization and they give you metrics and they say who's doing well and they update it and they you know they can do levels like here's a really easy phishing scam versus here's some really custom stuff and so you know if you're a little larger organization looking for a solution to hey i do want to embed some training with my with my staff that fishme.com is a really 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 great resource for uh, an organization looking to add that i think
1: excellent yeah excellent
0: Yeah, yeah, say, I mean, we we work with our staff all the time. And I mean, the the easiest thing we ask them to do is if if you have a suspicious email, just send it to us, send it to the IT team, and and they'll be happy to, you know, make sure it's legitimate or or tell you thanks, but you caught it and and you kept us, you know, out of trouble. Because I say, you know, as we were talking earlier, it's really about managing your reputation. You don't want your company name out there in, in the news.
1: Awesome. Travis?
0: Yeah, I think uh one of the, the good things to do is really definitely don't click
3: shame people, right? If they if they click on something is don't make it punitive like we said before, is you know, if you if you shame them into it, you make it a negative thing that they clicked on it as part of their training campaign, uh you'll probably turn that person into an insider threat, which is probably a much bigger threat than phishing would ever be. But you know, what we've seen successful with some of our clients is definitely gamify things. And it's you know, a millennial thing to say and do, but it actually works, right? And you give a reward, you know, if you have, a, you know, tell your employees that they're going to be going under a phishing campaign, and you give rewards, right, for each campaign of, uh, you know, this is the first person to report this phishing email, um, or departments who have the highest percentage of, you know, reporting uh, this phishing campaign, right, and you you highlight the positives rather than try to highlight the negatives, and you're going to make employees more engaged in your security operations.
1: I love that. Can either of you or all of you give us a real-life situation of either a company you worked for or maybe a company you're aware of that had been compromised and actually handled it, in your opinion, successfully? And I'd be curious to know why you feel they handled it successfully. So...
0: It's a tough one. Okay, yeah, how, about, how about if
1: they didn't handle it successfully?
0: <laughs> and well, you could start at Equifax. Yeah, that's that's true. True. No, Post children for bad behavior in well, our world right now. What's
1: scary is, is that what you don't see is in the studio, everybody went into shock because they thought, I don't know anyone who possibly so...
2: Well, I mean, maybe to answer that question, it's because, you know, the reality is that when a breach happens... First of all, the the worst thing that any organization wants to do is report it, right? No one wants to report that they're hacked. And really, thankfully, you know, in new regulations, there have been laws that said, actually, no, you have to report it, right? Like it is actually against the law if you hide it. So the reality is if someone does it really well and they've handled it really well, then we don't hear about it too often. So unfortunately, a lot of those really great success stories where things didn't get too bad, they just don't go in the news because no one wants to say, oh, we almost avoided a You know, we, we barely caught it in time. Like no one wants to. I mean, even though it's a really cool thing, right? So, I mean, the, the reality is I know that there are places that are doing it well. And I know there are places that have, you know, had their hands slapped on because they you know had a near miss. But unfortunately, we just see more often than not in the national news the people who worrylessly screw up, right? And then right. we, of course, openly shame them, right? So, <laughs> um, but yeah.
1: Okay, uh, Travis.
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think one way that was handled—I don't want to say
3: incorrectly—definitely the the response to the Equifax breach, and primarily one thing that that I had issue with, and that was not only just not around the breach, just how they were trying to verify customers that they you know, that their information was compromised or not. So they, you know, did the right thing, right? They set up a website to be able to have people check and see if they've been breached or not. But then from there, they started reinforcing very negative behaviors, right? So they opened up a website, which was not com or equifax.com slash something. It was a completely different domain of check your social security number at com. I can't remember what the, the real domain was, but they're telling people to go to this other domain and enter in their credit card or their social security information, which should be a huge red flag for anybody, right? It'd be the same thing as just somebody setting up a website and saying, enter in your password, and I'll tell you that if your password's been breached, probably not a good thing to do, and that's not behavior that we want to enforce for the general public. So it would have been a lot better if that was part of their regular domain. And even their, their social media campaign was tweeting out the wrong website because somebody, some security researcher had a issue with it, the same the same issue I have. And they just set up a different website that looked exactly like it and started tweeting out a different that domain name instead of Equifax's. And the Equifax social media team actually picked up the malicious link and was tweeting that out from the Equifax page. Wow. Uh, so again, it's just you know enforcing negative behaviors is, is the wrong way to go about things.
1: I'm gonna keep it positive <laughs> 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 because there's because to your point there's so much that we can learn from this. So if we were listening to this and we are a business, maybe we don't have an entire department dedicated, but we really want to take away some good points from this conversation. What would be maybe three to five really good best practices, suggestions, resources? I love the idea of fishme.com. Never even heard of that, but That's a great idea. You know, reasonable, affordable, and actionable, something that doesn't have to take five years to implement. What would you suggest?
0: Oh, I'd suggest first, I think, you know, passwords and and password management and really train just the people to use different passwords for different things. There's some great, you know, freeware out there that, you know, you can install on your phone or somewhere that manages those passwords. So if you have to create a more complex password, you don't have to type it in every time. That's excellent. Excellent.
2: Yeah and I and I think uh, a really good best practice too and this is sort of a common thing in the security field right now is to shift our thinking away from passwords to pass phrases mm. because you know on, you know on the one hand you know it's so funny we create passwords in such a way that are really hard for humans to remember but really easy for computers to crack, right? So X926128 is nonsense to a human, but a computer brute forcing it, they're going to try that eventually, right? But the password Jack and Jill went up the hill to fetch a pail of water is like a million characters long, and a computer will never crack that. And you've already memorized that, right? And so like, <laughs> pick your favorite movie title and add a couple of the numbers at the end. And you know, it's a pain in the butt to type it, sure, but that's such a powerful way to then now even the best supercomputer is never going to be able to crack that password, and it's super memorable, right? So I think that's a, a nice thing going from passwords to pass phrases
1: i love it i love it uh travis
2: yeah
3: i mean i I definitely think not reusing passwords is definitely one of the the biggest things just for password stuffing account uh, or attack and that's simply because uh, you know i talk to a lot of different people that are non-technical and i always that's always the number one thing i tell them that's going to keep them safe online like well it doesn't matter i mean nobody's going to attack me or my you know the bank that i bank at is secure they're not going to get breached But the problem being is that you're using that same password on the the hiking forums for Oregon, and they have absolutely no security, and they get breached. And it doesn't matter where an attacker steals a password from. They're going to reuse it on Bank of America and Wells Fargo and Chase and Twitter and Facebook, and they're just going to use those same credentials. So if you're reusing passwords, they're going to have access to all of your data. That's exactly why you shouldn't reuse passwords. but the number two thing being is you know patch early and patch often, a lot of malware uh, takes advantage of known exploits and known vulnerabilities. So by just installing Windows updates or you know it sucks whenever you open up your phone and you see a red dot on the app store, you know just go through and install those updates because they're usually there for a reason and you know usually should be there to protect you with negative without having a negative consequence on your the way your phone or your your computer works.
1: Excellent. How about each of you one website resource you absolutely love, especially for trying to stay ahead of the cyber attacks? Website you go to and you love and you would recommend for others?
0: Gosh, there, there's there's quite a few of them. Um, <laughs> Just one. <laughs> but I, I, you know, believe it or not, the FBI has a great site when okay. you look at their cyber stuff. I mean, and, and I think, you know, in, in my role, it never hurts to, to be educated. So, um, and they will show talk about trends and, and those kinds <laughs> of things.
2: You know, I love Wired Magazine, um, and they have a great online publication that actually has, if you look at their tabs, you know, they have all the different tabs, security is one of them. Nice. And what's great about that is they're just technical enough where, you know, people who are in the industry really appreciate it, but they're totally written in such a way that anyone can approach these articles. They're really current. They're written by some great technology professionals. They have even, like, this thing called the hacker lexicon, where they just define common, really trendy words, so that if you're kind of periodically reading through it, you really feel like you're up to date on what's going on on.
1: Awesome. Travis?
3: Yeah, probably the number one that I go to as far as looking at trends in the industry uh is following Brian Krebs. I think his what says Krebs on security dot com. Uh he's a you know former New York Times reporter, journalist and he is always on the cutting edge of what's happening in, in the you know cyber security world. Uh he's it's not uncommon for Brian Krebs to be the first one to report a breach has happened in cases like Target and things like that, where he's the one that's breaking the news of a major breach or a major event in the cybersecurity world.
1: Wow. Well, that's all for today on Cybercast Oregon. Thank you, Tobin, Greg, and Travis. If you missed part of the episode or want to listen again, you can find the show on PRP.FM and iTunes under Cybercast Oregon. We'll be back with fresh episodes. In the meantime, stay in touch on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We'd love to hear from you. Until next time, have a great weekend.
3: Cybercast Oregon is produced by Nastasia Voisin and hosted by Kedma O. Tech support by Austin Hall. Editing and music by Alistair Lee. This episode is made possible by Mount Hood Community College Small Business Development Center. Explore their workshops, online courses, and more at mhcc.edu sbdc. Our show is produced in the studios of Portland Radio Project. Check out prp.fm for more information. You can find previous episodes, extra content, and previews by following us. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at
2: Cybercast Oregon. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening.